Catching up with NASA's administrator, you're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. It's a busy week for space news. The first all-private crew is set to depart the station after spending more than a week on board. A new crew of NASA astronauts is set to launch to the station this weekend. And the agency's next mega-moon rocket experienced some troubles during a test at its launch pad, prompting more delays. We'll speak with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson about these stories. Plus, we'll discuss this week's astronaut launch to the station, which will send the first black female astronaut, Jessica Watkins, on a long-duration mission to the ISS. Last week, NASA announced its first equity action plan. We'll talk about the agency's efforts to make space more equitable for all. Then, Awis Emid wants to measure the health of the planet. His company Pixel is launching a fleet of satellites with the capabilities to monitor global health, including detecting gas leaks or spotting insect infestations before they can destroy crops. This innovation is made possible in part by affordable access to space. We'll talk with Emmett about his company and how commercial space is helping him see the world through a different lens. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. A crew of four astronauts is set to launch to the International Space Station this weekend. On board, NASA's Jessica Watkins is set to make a space flight first, becoming the first black woman assigned to a long-duration stay on the station. NASA is focusing on diversifying its astronaut corps, as well as its workforce in general. Last week, the agency released its first equity action plan in collaboration with the White House. Our conversation with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson begins there, at the agency's efforts to make space more equitable. Administrator Nelson, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's always a pleasure, Brandon. Administrator, a very important mission coming up with Crew 4 this weekend, um, especially one of the members of the crew, Jessica Watkins. Uh, she'll become the first black woman to have a long-duration mission on the International Space Station. I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of reflect on on this moment and, and this milestone uh, for Jessica and for equity in space. Well, you know, as we uh, spread our wings to give more opportunities to more people uh, that we try to distribute the opportunities to all people. In the old days, uh, when we first started flying in space, they were all military test pilots. They were usually white males of only a certain height. Because remember that Mercury capsule was pretty small. Uh, Now we have the opportunity to be flying everybody. That started with the first class of astronauts for the space shuttle, which was the class of 78. It had a number of African Americans, both male and female, as well as women. Uh, That started it. That's 1978, a long time ago. And uh, now we're going to land the first woman on the moon on the first flight. And in the course of the Artemis flights, we will land the first person of color. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the space shuttle program. Um, Three black women did fly uh, on the space shuttle program. Dr. Sian Proctor flew on on SpaceX for for Inspiration4. But the International Space Station has been operational for, for two decades, and we're getting our, our first black female astronaut now. I mean, is this, is this a long time coming? Why, why is it taking so long? Well, I just came in as the head of NASA 
uh, just 11 months ago. So uh, I intend to see that we're going to have uh, diversity. It's going to be uh, very important. Uh, part of that diversity is last week NASA announced the equity action plan. This is in, in um, cooperation with, with the, the White House. Tell me a bit about how this is going to kind of help you meet that goal. Um, you know, that this is an important goal for, for your administration. So, so how does this get you one step closer? Well, we'd be talking for an hour for me to tell you everything, but just to kind of give you a thumbnail sketch, uh, we want to see that all people of all backgrounds have the opportunity to participate in the space program. For example, I bet you uh, a number of the grants that NASA gives in the past haven't gone to a lot of rural areas. We're uh, giving grants to universities in rural states for the first time. So that's just one example of how we are spreading this out. Where where are the challenges when it comes to this? Is it getting people of diverse backgrounds into the pipeline, reaching different geographic locations? I mean, what's what's the challenge, and, and, and how might you be able to solve that? Well, to begin with, that was a challenge way back. Uh, NASA actually had to have a, a, a well-known person in the African-American community to go out and recruit African-Americans, and she was the actress Nichelle Nichols that played Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek on the TV series. And African Americans knew her and she went and encouraged them to apply for the astronaut office. And I've had, uh, for example, astronaut pilot commander Fred Gregory. He was an Air Force test pilot. He said, I would have never thought of applying to the astronaut office. Had she not said, you do it, there's going to be an opportunity for you. And so that was 1978. We have built on that over the years. Artemis program is aiming to put the first woman and person of color on the moon. That is That has been how you have been telling the American people that. Why is that? Do you think that that's going to be a watershed moment when that happens? And will have kind of the, the efforts that, that Nichelle Nichols did to get other people involved in, in space by seeing something like that happen? Well, the answer to your question is yes, that's going to be a watershed moment. Uh, when you put uh, the first woman and the next uh, man, uh, and it's always possible that it could be two women, but when you do that, you have, you have broken another barrier. And that's what NASA does. NASA breaks barriers. Uh, And so it's going to be not only a watershed moment, it's going to be, I suppose you'll be writing a story that day that will get uh, top billing at the front page of uh, all of your subscribers. I'm sure I'll be very busy that day, as as will you. Um, I I want to talk, go back to Jessica Watkins uh, just briefly Have you had conversations with her ahead of her mission? Have you given her any advice? Not specifically about this. I have uh, visited with her. Uh, But, uh, you know, the the decision-making in the astronaut office, I stay out of that. That's for the chief astronaut, the head of the astronaut office, 
and his immediate superior down at uh, the Johnson Space Center to uh, make those decisions. I want to talk a bit about Artemis uh, while I have you. Uh, We learned this week that um, the SLS rocket for Artemis 1 will be rolling back to the vehicle assembly building due to uh, a few technical issues that the teams found there. Um, Are you still confident that we might see a launch of of Artemis this summer? Um, Fairly confident this summer. I just don't know when this summer. Uh, We've got a number of launch windows. Uh, Brendan, get ready to get up early in the morning uh, (laughs) because the more it's uh, delayed, the more it's going to be earlier in the day. So, uh, But it's going to launch, and it'll launch when it's ready because we're going to make sure it's safe, and this is a test flight. And we want to get everything out of a test flight that we need to make sure when we put a crew of astronauts on top of that rocket that it's as safe as it can possibly be. As NASA's administrator, what is your, your motto when it comes to that? There's, there's always talk when you look back to you know, the shuttle days of, of launch fever and, and pushing people to get these launches out there. Um, how do you... Um, talk to your teams about this are, are are you telling them to be cautious are you are you pushing them how do you approach this this is a massive program um what's your leadership style when it comes to artemis one well you have a great deal of insight by the implication of your question uh, because uh, the lessons that we learned with the loss of challenger and also columbia is you don't want to launch until it's absolutely right. And there were human mistakes that were made in both of those launches, each of which was uh, catastrophic for a different reason. But it all came back to the lack of human communication. Uh, And uh, that's what I keep reminding people of. That's why uh, uh, Pam Melroy, our deputy, and Bob Cabana, both astronaut uh, commanders, and I, on the day of remembrance, uh, back at the end of January, remembering Apollo 1 fire, Challenger, and Columbia losses of the crews, uh, that's why we... We went over in detail, and we wanted people, and we recounted the details. We want our workforce, our NASA engineers, our managers. We want all the employees that are contractors that work for us. And this is 60,000 people. We want them to understand, if you see something wrong, you raise your hand. If you're not recognized, you stand up. If you're still not recognized, you go to the front of the room and get in front of the managers because that didn't happen with Challenger. And I know that one very well because after we landed on Earth in the 24th flight of the space shuttle, 10 days later, Challenger launched and blew up. Uh, switching gears, Administrator, um, this is my final question. Um, yesterday, um, the Vice President announced that um, 
the U.S. would would no would not participate in anti-satellite missile tests. Um, you released a statement, um, you know, agreeing with them. Um, can you kind of talk about just just briefly uh, why this is such an important stand to take, um, and why this administration uh, is drawing a hard line on this? When you put thousands of pieces of junk out in space and it's in an orbit that is close to other satellites and spacecraft, not even to speak of uh, when, when it's an orbit that threatens the International Space Station with an international crew, including Russians, and now a Chinese space station with Chinese Taikonauts, then there's absolutely no excuse for this. That you go and blow up with an ASAT test or an ASAT launch to destroy a satellite, there's absolutely no excuse for that because of all the damage that it's doing and the proliferation of junk, debris in space, any one of which can be catastrophic, not only for something like the space station or a spacecraft like uh, SpaceX, eventually the Boeing Starliner, but what about an astronaut, astronaut outside in a spacesuit doing a spacewalk? Then you could have something as small as a little uh, just tidbit of metal that if it hit them, and hit the suit, it could puncture a hole. So it's ridiculous when people are blowing things up purposely. And as a result, uh, this is a, a decision that's been a long time coming, and I'm glad that the Biden-Harris administration finally said it. We've been speaking with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. Uh, Senator Nelson, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Okay, Brendan. Good to see you. Bye-bye. That was NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. Still to come, measuring the health of the planet from above, Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE. I'm Brendan Byrne. How do you measure the health of the planet? One way is from above. That's what Oise Emmett wants to do, and his company Pixel is launching a fleet of satellites with the capabilities to monitor global health, including detecting gas leaks or spotting insect infestations before they can even destroy crops. This innovation is made possible in part by affordable access to space. Oise Emmett joins us now to talk more about his company and how commercial space is helping him see the world through a different lens. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks, Brendan. So your payload launched on uh, SpaceX's transporter mission. Uh, Take us back to that moment. What was it like seeing something you've worked so hard on go to space? I think it was a long time coming. (laughs) We had been working, the entire team had been working on this for a couple of years now um, to send send a piece of hardware that we had worked on. So I think it was a mixture of a lot of excitement, exhilaration, and also 
um very nerve-wracking as well you know as the countdown was um i think it was a stressful day because that day there was a lot of uh, rain there was a tornado warning in florida when the launch was supposed to go up and we weren't sure up until t minus 30 minutes that is it launching today is it not and then we finally heard it's good to go for launch and um we all came together um as the countdown began from t minus 10 t minus 9 you know it was it was quite nervous making sure that the rocket just lifted off but um once we saw that you know there was a second engine cut off um we knew that you know the the major chunk of the uh, the tough part was over so we were all excited uh, we hugged each other. So it was a culmination of a lot of hard work. So finally, good good to be seeing it up there. Let's take a step back. What What is the goal of of your organization? Um, and how does this piece of hardware, tell us a bit about the payload. Um, how is it helping you kind of reach this, this, this goal that you have for Pixel? So I think the goal that we have for the short term, for the next five to 10 years, is to build a health monitor for our planet. And what that means is that there are so many changes happening around planet Earth. We need to be seeing them, we need to be monitoring them, we need to be predicting some things in advance so that we can take better care of it, so that organizations and governments can take better action to make it more sustainable. Um, And how we are doing that is through our constellation of hyperspectral imaging satellites. When we started a few years back, we realized that existing satellite data is great. It's wonderful for a lot of use cases like mapping and whatnot, but it still lacked the amount of detail that we needed to actually see. You couldn't detect gas leaks. You couldn't detect pest infestations. So that's what we wanted to bridge with hyperspectral. And where this launch specifically helps us, it, it proves conclusively that the hardware that we have built here at Pixel at a resolution and at the level of detail that we have built will actually go up there will take images of the entire planet and take us one step closer to giving relevant inputs that can hopefully make our world a better and sustainable place. And what's the motivation for you to start this company? I mean, we, we talked, uh, 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 I think it was a year ago, um, when you, you first we first came across each other, um, and, and you told me that this, there's a very personal connection to what you're doing, right? I mean, can can you remind our listeners, you know, why you got into this business in the first place? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost is because I love space. <laughs> it's the uh, pixel is, is entirely for me to wake up every day and, you know, go to work, work on space technology that will actually go up there in orbit and work. So I think first, there was always a love for space ever since I was a kid. My dad used to get me these encyclopedias about space and black holes and the solar system. So reading up on that, I wanted to be an astronaut like a lot of us. Um, uh, as young kids want to do but there were a couple of instances when in undergraduate studies that I think actually led to Pixel the first one was being part of the student satellite team working with the Indian Space Agency to realize that um, you know this is what it actually takes to build hardware that will work in the harsh confines of vacuum Uh, this is how you need to go about it which is vastly different from any other kind of hardware that you generally need to build and then second uh, opportunity came along when SpaceX organized the Hyperloop competition globally. We were the one, only team participating from India. We got through one design stage after the another. And finally, we got selected to manufacture and test the pod at the SpaceX headquarters in LA. So when we took it there and we presented to Elon Musk and the rest of the team, um, they took us on a tour of the SpaceX factory after that. And looking at those rocket engines being built, looking at the Falcon 9 booster that landed back, I think brought back all those memories as I was a kid. And that's when I decided that, hey, you know what, I want to work in space technology for the rest of my life. Um, I wasn't sure how to go about it, but the next few months as I dived deeper led to the understanding that, you know, you could probably make satellite imagery better. So that was the connection to starting Pixel. Let's talk a bit about some of the things that this um, constellation of Pixel satellites is going to to kind of help. You said global health monitoring. You mentioned a few things um, that um, this this hyperspectral imaging is going to be able to show us. So you, you, you talked about gas leaks, um, you know, pest outbreaks. Um, 
what what are some of the things that that this technology can search for, and and how is that going to help these government agencies make better decisions about policy or uh, reacting to a, a particular disaster or emergency? What, what, what's the what's the broad use case for Pixel? So I think you can look at it in a variety of different use cases and industries. Some of the customers that we've already worked with or are working with. So when you look at agriculture, um, you know everyone needs food to survive. About a significant percentage of the global global crops are lost due to pest infestations, you know, leading up to $50 billion in, in losses just due to us not detecting pest infestations or crop diseases in time. And the reason we can't do that is because these symptoms are not visible to, you know, our eyes or normal cameras. You need a special kind of camera called the hyperspectral camera to actually see how the spectrum is changing. So what our satellites can do is we can look at vast swaths of agricultural land. We can identify that here we can probably see an outbreak of this pest or this disease and it's spreading in this direction, which means before it becomes a huge problem, we can you know help organizations on ground, whether that's through the government or whether that's through directly with these organizations to, to curb that. Another example would be when we work with oil and gas companies, they have thousands and tens of thousands of miles of these pipelines going through areas where no humans live and sending people to harsh areas such as deserts or you know Alaska when it's really cold is not possible not even with drones or airplanes and to be able to actually monitor tens of thousands of miles of these pipelines you need satellite imagery to say we are going to be monitoring every inch of that pipeline and whenever there is a leak that is occurring we can clearly see that as a bright spot in that spectrum that hyperspectral data provides so that's another example um, or if you're looking at areas uh, where there are forests we can take a look at a particular area and say you know what the moisture content in the leaves here in this part of the forest is so less that the probability of forest uh, being born here or the the fire being spread here is much higher so that's where the resources actually need to be uh, sent to so you can predict some things in that way so i think those are the few examples where the hundreds of bands of the data that hyperspectral imagery provides can help us see a little bit more than what is possible today i'm still caught up on being able to see these kind of pest infestations from space i mean we're, you're looking for very very tiny things from very very high up <laughs> why is this why is this the best way to do that i mean are are you looking for kind of um you know widespread impacts or 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 patterns that you can only see from space i guess to simplify my my question why is space the platform to be looking at for these things yeah so we don't want to identify it when it starts off in one plant we can't look at a particular plant and say that hey here is where it started but the issue is this when someone has millions of acres of farmland to monitor it's not possible with humans or with any on-ground sensors to be actually covering all of those millions of acres of land right to cover the millions of acres of land, you need a large way of doing that, which is where satellite imagery comes from the picture. So yes, of course, the pests or the diseases have spread a little, but they're still much lesser than you would have caught them much later. So scouring millions of acres of farmland in the first place, identifying which is the hotspot area out of those millions of acres where focus need to be spent on. Then the organizations or the agencies can send people on ground or they can send drones to be able to actually highlight it even further in that area. But step one um, to actually identifying which area is it spreading from is where satellite imagery comes into the picture because we are not looking at one farm or we're not looking at two farms. We're looking at it from a national perspective and eventually from a global perspective. I, w- I want to go back to the commercial aspect of of this. You launched on SpaceX's transporter mission, which promises low-cost um, access to space. Would Pixel be able to get its first piece of hardware into space if it wasn't 
for the affordable access that, that SpaceX is providing? I think we probably would have, but it would have meant that we could not have spent a lot of funding on things that we are otherwise building. You know, we have another satellite that's ready to go up in a few months. We had a camera that we, you know, launched last year. So SpaceX just came in and said that, you know what, the price of sending a kilogram of payload to space, we're going to slash it by five times and, you know, we're going to pay $5,000 per kg. So that makes it much more accessible in the sense that we can launch these way cheaper, but we can also use the money that we saved to build either backup systems or build other satellites so that in case this one for some reason did not work, um, we could have um, other satellite go up, not having all our eggs in one basket, so as to say. So I think that's been very critical. What is also helpful is that every year SpaceX has these transporter launches where it's focused on ride share. So we know that these rockets are going to launch, they're going to launch on time. Um, so that way we have some semblance of uh, knowing what the schedule of our operations will look like, which was not the case earlier, in which case there could be a year-long or two-year-long worth of delay just because the main satellite got got delayed um, and you're a ride share. So I think that's what SpaceX ride share program helps prevent. So glad that you know they were able to bring the price down, but also bring a lot more predictability into how this happens. Mm-hmm. Predictability, that and, and that's got to be important when you're launching a fleet of satellites, right? I mean, how many of these do you do you hope to get into into orbit and, and how long is that going to take? Yeah, so as we speak, we are currently manufacturing six Constellation satellites that are scheduled to go up in early 2023. So, you know, the first three to four months, the first quarter of 2023, we will launch six more satellites that will go up and start the first phase of our commercial Constellation. So there's a bunch of customers that have lined up to get our data and we can start serving them once we have these six up there. And in a few months, we're going to start manufacturing of 12 more of these satellites. So that will make it six plus 12 uh, constellation of around 18 satellites by the end of 2023 that will help us provide global coverage on a 24-hour basis on any place. So we can look at um, one place today and we can look at that same place within 24 hours, helping us see things that are rapidly changing. So that's what we are planning for right now. The plan is to expand that to a total of 36, double that as the demand goes up. But uh, 6 plus 12 should be plenty for us to start serving customers on a global basis. And how is the satellite doing that launched on SpaceX's transporter mission? Uh, healthy? Operational? Oh, I think uh, happy to say that it's looking all good. It's all green. So we did not, the team did not sleep, uh, you know, the entire night waiting for the first signal to come in. Um, and when that first signal finally came in that we have acquired the signal, the satellite is all good. Over the past uh, week and a half, we have been checking out one system after the other. Everything looks good. I don't think we have come across any problem. You know, there was a solar flare warning today um, and we are monitoring how that's going to impact it. But, you know, we have fail saves in place. But as of now, uh, everything top notch with the satellite. So nothing wrong. And your next launches, uh, do you think you're going to be uh, a little less anxious or a little less nervous? Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I think it's always going to be as nervous, but probably, you know, the this was our first fully fledged satellite. Um, so I think the, the worst is out of the way. But I think, you know, when you're sitting in front of the countdown, it's always going to be nervous. Maybe not as nervous as this one was. That was Oes Emin, founder of orbital imaging company Pixel. That's going to do it for this week's show. Next week, we're diving into the Decadal Survey with planetary scientist Paul Byrne and astrobiologist Amy Williams, and we'll discuss the plan for the next 10 years of space exploration. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed, get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit wmfe.org slash yet? Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis and production assistance from our intern, Beatrice Oliveira. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.